Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour. It is Monday night, which means I have the absolute privilege, the honor of being joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? I'm good. You know what? I can hear my kitten wailing outside the door and he keeps putting his paw under. So I feel like a very guilty working mum at the moment. So if I break down in tears and complain about how women can't have it all, you know why. You need to teach the little animal independence. It needs to know. It needs tough love, I think. So I'm going to keep you maybe even longer than usual, just to spite the little kitten. Um, we have four great stories tonight. We are going to be talking about the winter plan, which Boris Johnson is set to announce tomorrow. Lots of details about that we know already. Therese Coffey's slap in the face for low-wage Britain. Keir Starmer's latest reset. I have no idea what number we are on now. And Emma Raducanu's win. Obviously, we're not experts at tennis analysis, so we're going to be talking about the political fallout or at least the political responses which it has motivated which it has led to first story tomorrow boris johnson is set to lay out his covid plan for winter but we already have an idea of its key elements booster shots are in as are jabs for teenagers vaccine passports are out and it seems likely lots of other mitigation efforts are to be completely ignored Let's go through these issues one by one. It had been briefed that JCVI, so that's the group of scientific advisors on vaccines, would release their recommendations on third vaccine doses for the vulnerable later this week. But today, Boris Johnson jumped the gun. Asked about booster jabs, he said, that's going ahead. That's already been approved. I think that's a good thing. Experience in Israel suggests booster shots will be effective, though they are controversial with experts in global health who worry they'll put developing countries even further back in the vaccine queue. We'll speak more about that later. A second component of the plan are vaccines for secondary school children. As we discussed last week, the JCVI advised against vaccinating healthy 12 to 15-year-olds on the grounds that the health benefits would only be marginal. However, they also encouraged the chief medical officers to assess whether the broader impacts of vaccinations, including on education, might justify their use. Today, the CMOs gave their verdict. This is England's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty. Will vaccination uh, reduce the disruption and therefore reduce these very significant uh, negative impacts? And our assessment is the answer to that is yes. It will reduce uh, education disruption. We do not think that this is a panacea. This is not a silver bullet. It's not a single thing that on its own will do so. But we think it is, a, it is an important and potentially useful additional tool to help ha reduce the public health impacts that come through educational disruption. So that's been, that has been really critical in our decision making. And this is uh, true whether we're talking about individuals, physical health, individuals, mental health, or the long-term effects that a disrupted education can have on people's life chances. So that's very much where a lot of our discussion lay. And we did think that on balance, it was likely to improve things. And we looked at the negative sides, and there are some uh, issues around operational issues, say particularly around vaccination. But our view was the benefits that this is likely to lead to in terms of reducing uh, impacts on education outweighed those negative areas. So overall, our assessment is combining the marginal but uh, uh, assessed benefit that JCVI made at an individual level, taking on board additionally the issues around education, our view was the benefit exceeded the risk, 
to a sufficient degree that we are recommending to our ministers in all four nations that they make a universal offer, and I want to stress the word offer, of vaccination to children uh, 12 to 15 in addition to the ones that have already been given it. Combined with this decision, comments from the health secretary yesterday suggest a rollout in schools could start within a week. Well, the advice that I've received so far, which is from the JCVI, which is our sort of committee of experts, they gave their advice and said that they thought there were other issues that needed to be looked at. They recommended to me that I get the chief medical officers of the UK to, to give me their advice, which is what I'm waiting for. Now, that's, rightly, that's independent advice. But if I they hope give it. If, if they give it, we will be able to start you know, within a week of, of, um, of getting advice that says go ahead and then making that your final government decision. So jabs and, in the arm of yeah. school children. Been, yeah, I've been, I think it's been sensible to ask the sort of education system, the school's vaccination service, to plan for that. They've been planning for it throughout the summer, just in case you know, we get that advice so we can hit the go button without any further delay. The surprise omission from the plan looks set to be vaccine passports. The vaccine minister, Nadeem Zahawi, had last week described vaccine passports as the best way to keep the night industry open. But on the Andrew Marr show, Sajid Javid signalled a U-turn. But we just shouldn't be doing things for the sake of it or because others are doing it. We should look at every possible intervention properly. So you asked about vaccine passports. So I think it's fair to say, I think most people probably instinctively don't like the idea. I mean, I, I've never liked the idea of saying to people, you must show your papers or something to, to do you know, what, what is just an everyday activity. But we were right to, you know, to properly look at it, to look at the evidence. But you're not uh, doing it. Well, what I can say is that we've looked at it properly. And whilst we should keep it in reserve as a potential option, I'm pleased to say that we will not be going ahead with plans for vaccine passports. Viewers of Friday's show will know my thoughts on vaccine passports. So let's go straight to Ash. We only know the skeleton of the COVID winter plan. What do you make of it so far? Well, I think that the opportunity for 12 to 15 year olds to be vaccinated is a really wise decision on the part of the government. We saw in that run up to Christmas last year, where the bulk of the new infections were coming and entering into households for the first time, it was via secondary school pupils. So I think in terms of avoiding some of the runaway infection rates that we did see last year, which obviously had a tremendously disruptive effect on people's lives, people's Christmas plans, people's education, and of course also uh, resulted in an unconscionable number of deaths, the vaccination rollout for 12 to 15 year olds, I think is a really good idea. Now, when it comes to vaccine passports, Michael, I think I differ from you a little bit. I think in selected settings, vaccine passports as a condition of say international travel or living in halls of residence at university, these are sensible and proportionate decisions. All right. So one is that uh, it's obviously something which helps other countries uh, keep as much of a lid on uh, variants as they're able to. And when it comes to things like university halls of residence, where you do have an awful lot of mixing, awful lot of close contact between high numbers of people, um, it just means that one, you can stop that from being um, a site of outbreaks. And two, um, it's... It, I, I think it's not so extreme or disproportionate because you can obviously go to university without living in the halls, right? It's, it's a decision. Um, the choice not to get vaccinated is, it has consequences that you have to live with. The reason why I'm much more skeptical of a wholesale vaccine passport rollout 
the night industry, for hospitality, um, or, you know, even for, for more sort of quotidian settings is that you've got to really have a serious think about who it is they exclude. So we'd probably be looking at some kind of digital passport, which we know is going to exclude um, a whole swathe of people uh, who are on the receiving end of, of being locked out of smartphone use and internet use that does affect a significant portion of people in this country. And it will disproportionately impact those communities that we know have got low levels of trust when it comes to the government and the medical establishment, and therefore also have lower rates of vaccination. I'm thinking here about working class communities and BAME communities. So I don't think that a wholesale vaccine passport rollout is proportionate. I think that it's also something which could entrench a breakdown of trust and keep those people being hard to reach in a medical sense. So I, I'm in agreement with the government in terms of not rolling out a wholesale vaccine uh, passport policy, because I do think uh, that it is a disproportionately exclusionary. And the other thing that I would say, just to tack on to the end of it, which is I think we should retain an instinctive discomfort with the idea of having to demonstrate medical status as a condition of entry into public life. Do you think that's an all right discomfort to have? I'm not saying, I, you know, in my ideal world, world, we wouldn't have vaccine passports, but in my ideal world, we wouldn't have coronavirus. So I think weighing up the different issues, yes, if we have vaccine passports for six months going into nightclubs, that might disproportionately affect some people who, for example, don't have legal status, which is unfortunate. But if the alternative is that nightclubs get completely closed, or the alternative is that transmission goes out of control. I mean, it, it just it just doesn't seem like an enormous cost to me. So I'm sort of in favour of all those measures which can prevent hospitals overwhelmed and which can prevent a lockdown. And yes, there will be some negative consequences to those. I think many of them you could limit if you said you can also have a negative lateral flow test instead of a vaccine, um, which I think was, you know, under consideration. In terms of the, the digital infrastructure, I already have it on my phone. You know, it, it, it just doesn't seem that Orwellian to me. We won't spend too long on this, but I suppose, do you want to respond to those points? But no, but, that, but that's the thing is that, Michael, you and I, we're not digitally excluded in any sense. All right. We're both, you know, technologically literate. We both own smartphones, both have laptops, both have internet connectivity at home. We're absolutely not the kinds of people that would be affected uh, by some kind of vaccine passport rollout. Like we're really not. We've also traveled internationally recently, which means that we had to demonstrate vaccine status as a condition of entry into uh, Malta. Um, so we're absolutely not the kinds of people who would be affected. But there are people who would be affected and who have, you know, for instance, been on the receiving end of various government policies, which have required, uh, you know, demonstration of immigration status, you know, demonstration of proof of residence, so on and so forth. And that lack of connectivity has been a real problem. So it wouldn't affect you or me. And I agree with you. I think that when it comes to something like nightclubs, really the relevant factor here is the test. You put two things together, high rates of vaccination and high rates of testing, that does ultimately bring the risk down. But as we know, um, there will be reducing vaccine um, efficacy, the longer it is since people have had their initial jabs, particularly if it's AstraZeneca. And so testing seems to be the relevant safeguard for access into public spaces rather than vaccine status. I mean, that, that, that's still going to require certification. So that would contain many, many of the problems you've already mentioned, because that would presumably be done digitally as well. So it could all, that, would all, that would also leave out people who were who were Can be done digitally. So I mean, I are, don't know. I went, I went to a club night and they just made me bring the little test thing in a doggy bag. Really? That's disgusting. It was, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was 
<laughs> Everywhere I've gone, they've made it based on a test, but uh, not a test, a text. We shouldn't spend too long on this. Regular viewers will have seen us discuss vaccine passports a lot. I think you've got many reasonable points. I think we, we disagree when it comes to sort of weighing up the costs and benefits. Let's look in a bit more detail at some of the issues I raised in my intro on vaccinating children. I think it's clear this is the right decision. What's frustrating is how long it took. Chris Whitty was asked about the mixed messages and delays at his press conference today. This was his answer. What we would really regret, and uh, I, I want to be you know, really clear about this, is getting the decision wrong. So I'd much rather, this is a slightly uh, more complex process involving several stages, and at the end of it, the medical profession as a whole feels comfortable that we've considered all the various angles, the public health profession as a whole does, and therefore we can communicate that to uh, children and families. Some decisions are completely barn door obvious. If, you, if you're talking to someone who's 85 and they're choosing not to get vaccinated, the short answer is just get the jab. This is going to have a very high chance of stopping you dying. Uh, whereas actually in this situation, it is a more difficult one. And I think it is appropriate, therefore, that people have taken longer to get to this and to make sure we weighed all the different elements up to get this, uh, this right. So I think, you know, it's always nicer and to be able to package it in a very simple way, but it is fundamentally more important to get the, de the decision in a way that people, I think, feel comfortable and is the center of medical and public health opinion. And then we, we, uh, here, but also importantly, other healthcare professionals around the country, uh, can communicate it as they do day, day in, day out. Much of medicine is about communicating actually quite complicated things in a way that's appropriate to the age and the particular state in life that people are. This is very much normal medical practice. Now, we show clips of, of Chris Whitty very often on this show. I always say, you know, I, I think he seems like an honest, intelligent, well-meaning guy. He gets lots of you know, uncalled for abuse, I think. At the same time, on this, I don't really think his explanation stacks up. So the official story is that the CMOs don't have any disagreement with the JCVI, but that they took into account broader issues than the Vaccines Committee did. So they're saying the JCVI said the medical benefit for children, for young people is marginal, but we're going to look at the wider impact of vaccination on education. But if that's the case, why the hell did we spend the whole summer holiday empowering an organisation who wouldn't consider the impact of reopening schools? We waited until schools reopened to even consider whether vaccinations might help keep them open. Something has surely gone wrong there. That is a massive missed opportunity. Let's move on to boosters again. These seem like a smart idea in terms of minimising disease and disruption this winter. There are already clear signs that immunity wanes after around six months and countries such as Israel are already rolling out widespread booster campaigns. But boosters are controversial because of the impact they could have outside of Britain. Namely, the more vaccines we use, the further back we push developing countries in the queue. That's a real problem. Only around 8% of Africa's population is fully vaccinated. And despite what ministers say, the UK's response to this problem has been poor. We promised to send 100 million vaccines overseas by the middle of 2022. So far, only 9 million have been delivered. Criticisms of the way the government has balanced vaccinations at home and abroad have been made by Sarah Gilbert. She's the creator of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And last week, she told The Telegraph, 
We need to get vaccines to countries where fewer the populations have been vaccinated so far. We have to do better in this regard. The first dose has the most impact. As the virus spreads between people, it mutates and adapts and evolves, like the Delta variant. With these outbreaks, we want to stop that as quickly as possible. We will look at each situation. The immunocompromised and elderly will receive boosters, but I don't think we need to boost everybody. Immunity is lasting well in the majority of people. It's an interesting point, and I think especially that idea that it's the first dose that, that matters most is, is really important because it is, it's kind of disgraceful that we're debating in this country whether or not people need a third vaccine before most people in the world have even had their first that's morally very problematic. At the same time, this is because we have an issue of scarcity. We have an issue of scarcity because there has been no global strategy to boost vaccine production and because big pharma, big pharmaceutical companies have lobbied against releasing patents. That's what most developing countries are lobbying for at the World Trade Organization. World Trade Organization, it is being blocked. Let's finally go back to non-pharmaceutical interventions. This is where I think the government strategy seems particularly boneheaded. And that's because, once again, they seem committed to only taking action once it's too late. This was from the FT's Sebastian Payne on Sunday. Whitehall officials say vaccine passports were dropped because the COVID situation is not as bad as some feared at this stage, and ministers decided they were unnecessary. But government insiders say they could still come later this year if required. Javid only ruled out this month, so they could come later. For me, there are a couple of issues with this. First of all, things are already quite bad. There were almost 1,000 COVID deaths last week. And according to the Health Service Journal, nearly half of hospital trusts have already hit unsafe occupancy levels. That's clearly a very big problem. You guys say, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll wait until it gets bad. It has got quite bad. The second problem, and this is more fundamental, is why are we waiting for things to get really bad before taking preventative measures? Why wait until hospitals are on the brink of total collapse before asking people to do simple things like wearing masks or trying to make nightclubs safer? Ash, I want your thoughts on all of these. It does seem like the government has learned absolutely nothing over the past 18 months. Yet again, we're saying, oh, we won't take this simple preventative action because we're going to you know, close our eyes and wait until it gets really, really, really bad. I mean, look, I think that there are two explanations for this. One is incompetence. So this is a government made up of not particularly innovative, visionary uh, intelligent people. And I think that they are inclined, particularly Boris Johnson, to believe their own bullshit when it comes to going back to normal. That has been a pattern throughout the course of this pandemic. This self-deluding impulse at the very top levels of government to say, well, we can do it differently from everybody else. We don't actually have to take drastic measures in order to uh, contain this, uh, you know, deadly and frightening virus. So there's a competency problem. And then there is also an ideological opposition, I think, to taking measures which I think fully acknowledge and come to terms with the reality of COVID-19 on our way of life. It's something which friend of the show, James Meadway, was saying really from the earliest days of March 2020, was that this is probably going to impact how we live for quite some time. It might be that we're looking at 
you know, intermittent lockdowns, potentially moving towards more of a circuit breaker model. It might be uh, that we have to have a really, you know, just like a blanket vaccine rollout with regular boosters and that there might be restrictions on international travel for many years to come. If you accept that coronavirus is something that we're going to have to live with, for a long time, well, then you have to start making adjustments in terms of what your expectations of the state are, and in particular, state spending. So this is a government which is ideologically wedded to the end of furlough, getting rid of the £20 uplift in universal credit, despite having uh, one of the lowest rates of statutory sick pay in Europe. They stayed committed to that paltry sum of £96 a week, even though it probably would have saved lives by facilitating people uh, to stay home when they were ill and they really needed to. So there are ideological uh, commitments here, which I think that the government are, are really loath to move away from. Fundamentally, they don't think it's the state's job to look after people, to look after people's health. So if you stay in a, in a, in a state of what I would call soft denial about the reality of coronavirus, well, then you can avoid uh, implementing some of the policies that this country would really need. I do think this idea of thinking about this in terms of the long term is, is really important. There are many measures that we could take to make this winter less difficult. And it's going to be a really, really difficult winter, not just because of COVID, but because there are flus which we don't have the same immunity to that we would after a normal winter, because obviously the lockdown was incredibly successful at, at suppressing those. That's going to make it very difficult for the NHS once you also include people going into hospital with COVID-19. And also, you know, how worn out, how stressed out everyone in the NHS already is. That's going to be incredibly difficult. There are things that we could introduce for this winter that we could have forever and would actually just make our lives better forever. So if you introduce good ventilation in schools, for example, that won't just be good for reducing levels of COVID. That will also be good for reducing levels of flu, right? Now, I don't think we should have lockdowns for flu. I don't necessarily think we should have contact tracing for flu. But if we had things like good ventilation to make flu less of an issue every winter, that's a win-win. And, and these are the kind of easy long-term wins that, as you say, Ash, I think this government are ideologically opposed to making. And it seems odd to say that. Why would you be ideologically opposed to ventilation? <laughs> Who could possibly oppose ventilation? The thing they're ideologically opposed to is taking responsibility for health and safety in schools, in the workplace, because it's just too interventionist for them. If, if, if we want healthy workplaces and that, where we don't catch um, airborne diseases, what are we, what are we going to want next? Sick pay? What are, what are we going to want next? Are we going to want roads where, where we're not at risk of getting run over by, by cars? Do we want to pedestrianise streets forever? They'll want to keep the good things from the lockdown. They'll want to keep the good things that were developed over the pandemic forever, which for the Tories would be a disaster, which is why it's unfortunate we have them in power. Let's go on to our next story. The Tories are still desperately trying to justify their planned cut to universal credit the end of the £20 uplift to the benefit will leave 4.4 million households poorer overnight, and it's been universally condemned by anti-poverty charities. Yet Therese Coffey, the minister in charge of the benefit, suggested it shouldn't pose a real problem to anyone. If they were concerned about lower incomes, they could just work extra hours. £20 a week is about two hours extra uh, uh, work every week. We'll be seeing what we can do to help people uh, perhaps secure those extra hours, but ideally also to make sure they're in a place to get better paid jobs as well. 
And that's where elements of the yeah. £650 billion in infrastructure projects uh, supporting 425,000 jobs. We can want to try and help people get on into those better paid jobs, often in construction, but other elements as well that go alongside these big major projects. So what you seem to be saying is that what you take £20 a week off you uh, and you have to work longer then? I was saying that uh, it's a temporary uplift, recognising the reason it was introduced. Uh, that's come to an end, that reason. We're seeing record numbers of vacancies. We're seeing uh, elements of uh, uh, employment continuing to go up. Uh, and I'm confident that we can do pe um, the 27,000 work coaches that we have uh, right around the country will be helping people, as I say, not only get back into work, but to get progress in work as well. There are two big problems with what Therese Coffey said. There, I say problems, I mean... It's completely offensive what she went out and said there. So first of all, for those who can possibly find extra work, it's simply not true. That's because when you're on universal credit, every extra hour you work, the fewer benefits you are entitled to. It's called the taper. So if you earn an extra tenner, you'll lose up to £7.50 for increased taxation and drops in benefits. It's not the case that you can just work two extra hours and get 20 extra quid. The point was made well by the Resolution Foundation. They're the experts on universal credit, responding to Coffee's claim that an extra two hours could make up for the universal credit cut. They said, if only this were true, a universal credit claimant on the national living wage will take home as little as £2.24 from an extra hour's work. A small increase in working hours will be nowhere near enough to cover the £20 a week cut coming their way next month. The other reason Coffee's claim is ill-informed and offensive is because a large proportion of recipients of universal credit are unable to work. How are they supposed to work those extra hours, those extra six hours, as the, the Resolution Foundation says, to get that extra 20 quid because of the taper? This tweet was representative of many responses to Coffee. Tyrone Wilson said, I am registered unfit for work and you are taking that money off me anyway. This cut to universal credit is an appalling policy. It's going to have damaging impacts on so many people across this country. What this clip shows is not only are cabinet ministers willing to cause that damage, they don't even understand the nature of the benefit they're cutting. She's just completely ignorant. She is the most important person in the country when it comes to managing benefits, and she doesn't understand how they work. I mean, look, this is a cruel and stupid government which seeks to implement cruel and stupid policies. And the way in which you create the political cover to do so is by saying cruel and stupid things. This is completely divorced from the reality of universal credit claimants and also completely divorced uh, from the reality of the kind of economy uh, that we're entering into. So one, you have had over a decade of lost wage growth at this point. So uh, people's finances, if they were in work, were already particularly tight. It's been the single biggest fall in living standards since the Napoleonic Wars. You have a cost of living crisis, particularly in the area of housing, but also transportation. And you've also got a really uncertain employment market. The furlough scheme has sort of managed to keep businesses afloat. We don't know what the impact of lost income over the pandemic is likely to be when that goes away completely. And some of the other sort of job retention schemes start to offer neato forever. So it might be that we're looking at rather than this continuing increase in employment. And by the way, we should take a really serious look at what kind of jobs are being created. They're not high quality, well-paid, secure jobs. They're often very insecure, low-paid, 
temporary forms of work, but we also might be looking at, in some sectors, an employment crisis, right, where more people are pushed onto the mercy of the benefit system. Um, so it's completely economically illiterate. It's also just completely cruel. What have we learned from this pandemic, if not that you can't improve society at all by punishing some of the most vulnerable people? Um, we've seen that with free school meals, that it, there was no good trying to use uh, the hunger of children to discipline their parents. It was just cruel. It was just stupid. Um, when it came to uh, establishing furlough, which was... Uh, the government had to be bullied into it by Corbyn and Sean McDonnell back in the early months of 2020. Initially, there was a complete denial from the government of that you would need in order to preserve people's health uh, support of their incomes. And we've also seen the really reckless decision to keep statutory sick pay very, very low. So I think that we should look at, you know, Therese Coffey with a degree of disdain. I don't think she's a particularly able capable uh, or intelligent minister, but it is a product of an ideology which believes that the best thing the state can do is act malevolently towards the people who are most in need of its care. I want to look in a bit more detail at the consequences of this cut because it is, it is incredible, the number of people who are going to be significantly affected by this and the degree to which they will be. The Resolution Foundation say that one million households will lose 10% of their disposable income overnight. 10%. That's enormous for an overnight cut. Huge numbers of households will be hit everywhere. The number of people this affects is just staggering. So this chart, again from the Resolution Foundation, shows a proportion of non-pensioner households who will be over £1,000 worse off per year once that cut comes into effect. In the northeast, it's a quarter of households. In London, Northern Ireland and the West Midlands, it's 22%. It's above 14% everywhere. Ash, I want to get your opinion on the politics of this, because I think one of the reasons the Conservatives got away with austerity is because they targeted relatively small groups of people. You know, obviously, an enormous number of people were really badly affected by austerity, but they'd go for the disabled, who aren't a, a huge proportion of, actually, there are a lot of disabled people, but the people who were incredibly negatively affected by those um, cuts, they might have thought, oh, they're Labour voters anyway, for example. This set of cuts, it seems to be striking potentially lots of people who might have won the Conservatives the past, the, the last general election. There are lots of people saying that they should call this the red wall tax. Labour should be sort of hammering that home. Why are the Tories so confident they can get away with this? Well, I think that sometimes when we talk about the politics of the new Tory coalition, we sometimes talk in terms of geography when we need to also be talking about age and asset ownership. So when you think about those swing voters who were really responsible for delivering the Boris Johnson landslide in 2019, they're not necessarily working age people within Red Bull seats. The vast majority of them are older. They own their own home. And it's something like, I think, you know, 55%, if I'm remembering the statistic correctly, of Tory voters own their own home outright. So we're talking about people who are in a very different economic position to people who are within the employment market. All right. The main thing which is responsible for their economic security isn't what's in their wage packet. It's in the value of their house and that continuing to go up. 
So you've got some divergent economic interests here. And I think that the calculation is a very cynical one, which is you can push policies which are essentially an attack on working and working age people. So slashing the £20 uplift in universal credit or adding a 1.25% increase in national insurance contributions, which are disproportionately going to affect uh, working age people because they're not the... They're not those who the Tories are really uh, looking to shore up their electoral base. All right. And that's why they tend to do well in towns where home ownership is 50% and over. It's also why they've tended to do much better in places with aging populations. Now, whether or not they're able to get away with it, well, it depends how much this politicizes and is able to coalesce a, a political subjectivity, a worldview, a movement of working age people. Now, you were right in terms of some of the most vicious attacks of austerity were on people who were either minoritized in some way, like disabled people, or generally disempowered and disenfranchised when it came to political power. Um, So, you know, people who are unemployed, people who are out of work. But it was able to politicize huge swathes of the country, people who worked in the public sector, people who worked for the local council. And that kind of ended up being one of the bedrocks of Corbynism, right? That was a kind of, you know, pretty well-represented demographic was those sort of public sector workers whose, you know, sense of civic duty and fairness was affronted by the imposition of austerity, but also they'd seen firsthand their ability to deliver services being, you know, severely impinged and restricted by austerity. So that was something which I think was was responsible for that wave, which, which you know, put Jeremy Corbyn in the position of Labour leader and very nearly uh, delivered the keys to number 10 in 2017. Now, it might be that these policies, when looked at altogether, the national insurance contributions policy and also uh, the slashing of this £20 uplift has a similarly politicizing effect. But it's only powerful if you've got either an individual or an organization which can make something of it. Now, I think at this particular point in time with this particular leadership, that's not going to be the Labour Party. The problem is, is that Keir Starmer, I don't think, has a theory of change. I don't even think he really has a theory of how society works. <laughs> He's just got like a few kind of rhetorical gestures um, and, you know, sound bites and kind of soothing noises that he makes, you know, towards retirees every so often, but he doesn't really have an idea of uh, fundamentally what's wrong with society or how it is he wants to fix it. So I don't think that he's going to be in a particularly strong position to capitalize on it. Uh, We don't also have that kind of mobilization, which you saw in extra parliamentary movements uh, between 2010 and 2015. Only time will tell if those kinds of organizations uh, will begin to generate themselves. But so this could be damaging. I don't think it will be right now, um, but it certainly could be. Let's go to our next story. Labour strategists are still concerned that no one in Britain has any idea as to what Keir Starmer stands for. But they have a plan to change that. It's to publish a 14,000-word essay with no policies. This was reported in the Sunday Times. They write, 
So Keir Starmer is to publish a 14,000-word mission statement to Labour members on the eve of the party's annual conference later this month. The Labour leader's lengthy essay for the Fabian Society is an attempt to reset his leadership and to answer those who have questioned what he and his party stand for. A source close to Starmer described the contents as an intellectualised version of his conference speech. However, the essay is not expected to include any fresh Labour policy announcements and will focus broadly on the themes of security and opportunity. A senior Labour figure said it's supposed to set out the Starmer credo. It's essentially the answer to those who say, what do you believe in and what do you stand for? And I am sure that it will suffice to do that job. Ash, we've got another reset. I'm, I'm not sure what number this is, but when it comes to showing what Keir Starmer stands for, do you agree with the senior Labour figure who says the 14,000 word essay will suffice? I'm going to be really happy if it contains the phrase, we must go forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. You know, that's the really inspiring intellectualized vision that I can get behind. Um, look, there's a certain irony, it's been pointed out by others, that one of the things that Keir Starmer and his team keep saying is that Labour need to stop the navel gazing. They need to stop looking inwards. They need to look outwards at the country and speak to people. And yet their only solutions have been to continue the forever war within their organization, punching left at every opportunity they get, and then going, you know, what's really going to speak to you, uh, you know, the everyday voter dealing with a cost of livings crisis, uh, a 14,000 word essay. Like that's what you really need. Um, that, and when I'm talking about, you know, Keir Starmer needing a theory of change and an idea of how society works, I actually couldn't care less to read about it. Just fucking do it. Just demonstrate it in your messaging, in your policy platform, and the attack lines that you choose. Show, don't tell. That's basic politics 101. And it was something which you really saw with, you know, Corbyn and McDonnell, actually, I remember when they tried to do their uh, populist relaunch, I think this was January, either 2016, 2017, uh, memory escapes me. And it was something which was being like badged as a bit of a relaunch. And it didn't go that well. And they were definitely doing too much telling and not enough showing. You then got them in the context of a general election and a manifesto, and they were animated by it. And it became a lot more clear and a lot more purposeful. And you'd think that Keir Starmer having, you know, lurched from failed relaunch to failed relaunch. We had the Hartlepool relaunch. We had the Batley and Spen relaunch. You know, we had the, um, we're going big on fairness relaunch. We'd had the dog theft relaunch. You'd think that he would go, maybe this new Coke rebrand every five minutes isn't actually going to do it for me. And I should try and offer something to the country. And like, look, I'm, I'm probably going to have to read this fucking thing for my job. But I just want you to know, Michael, that I don't want to. I don't want to read 14,000 words of Keir Starmer. I want to read the new Sally Rooney, you know, in the bath with some candles. I want to read 14 fucking thousand words from the most boring man who's ever lived. Hopefully it will come with an executive summary. I, I hope it's summarizable because, yeah, 14,000 14, is like a dissertation. Like that, that's... People say maybe maybe political leaders writing books is a good thing, like Bernie did it, Bernie Sanders did it, Pablo Iglesias did it. You do have to have some interesting ideas, though. And probably you have to, you know, even if there's no fully fleshed out policies, you have to say some of the things you would do were you to enter power. 
bit more information from it, which is that the article is being written with the help of his former aide, Paul Avendon, and the former Times columnist, Philip Collins, who wrote Tony Blair's final conference speech. If I'd have gone for a Tony Blair advice, I'd go for one of the ones around 97, you know, when he was still winning, not the one when he was already considered completely toxic. Although I suppose Starmer's considered quite toxic, so maybe that's Philip Collins's speciality. You mentioned navel-gazing. Apparently this is supposed to solve that. Um, this is also from the Times. A senior party insider said Starmer wrote the essay while he was on his summer tour and meeting voters. The party lost at the last general election. It's about where we are now as a party and where we are going. It's about turning the page and ending the navel-gazing. So this essay is, is about ending navel-gazing. Now, Ash, I'm, I'm not sure what the opposite of navel-gazing is, but for me, it's not 14,000-word essays. Michael, can you imagine if I sent you a 14,000-word WhatsApp message all about me and what people think about me and what I might do next and what maybe I got wrong in the past and what I'm like now? And then I said, but by the way, this is really not about me. It's not navel-gazing. This is really about you. Would you believe that? Would you think that's the single most delusional shit I've ever heard in my life? What's the meme? I think you shared the meme, which is, um, I'm not going to read that, but I'm happy for you or I'm so sorry. Whatever it <laughs> yeah, said. I mean, it's, I, I ain't reading all that. I ain't reading all that. <laughs> I mean, look, this is, this is the, the apotheosis of, of navel-gazing. And I think there's something serious here. Um, and you can kind of see by the tapping up of uh, Philip Collins, whose main big idea uh, in the last 12 months has been Starmer should purge the left and purge it hard, right? That's been kind of the main thing that he's been saying. And so by tapping up Philip Collins to uh, write this thesis, um, on, you know, Starmerism and labor and blah, blah, blah. I think what that shows is that it's going to outline what the priorities are of this particular faction. It's not about getting the party ready for power. It's not about getting the party ready for a general election. It's about consolidating the grip of a particular faction on the Labour Party machinery and using electability as a flimsy pretext to do so. Um, you know, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, that's what, what I think is going to happen um, in this in this piece. Um, one thing that I would say is that I feel that, you know, Starmer has almost learned the worst lessons from Blairism, which is all triangulation and, and no punch, you know, nothing pithy, nothing memorable, uh, certainly no real attack when it comes to going for the Conservatives. And Tony Blair, obviously, um, his politics are about as far as far from mine as I can imagine, particularly on foreign policy and public ownership and the stuff that really, really matters to me. But in terms of being a political operator, he had a killer instinct. And he also knew, like, actually, when it comes to your vision, people just want to know what's going to fit on a flashcard. And you just hammer those lines again and again and again until the public really gets it. This is the opposite. This is just all waffle. So unless it's 14,000 words of, you know, uh, a novel really about, you know, four young hipsters trying to make it in the world of literature and having sexual adventures along the way, I don't think anyone's going to be interested. Maybe we'll be shocked and it's actually a sort of 14,000 piece of literary genius. But I mean, we often show Starmer interviews on this show and, and generally his one aim in them seems to be to not be pinned down on actually believing anything. So I, I imagine it's going to be 14,000 words of not trying to commit to anything. 
Um, but we could be proved wrong. Who knows? Let's go to our final story. Emma Raducanu winning the US Open was extraordinary. The 18-year-old's victory in the competition was the first time ever that a player who had to qualify to get into the tournament as opposed to gaining entry through their rank won the final competition. Just three months ago, Raducanu was ranked 338 in the world. In her first Grand Slam this July, she made the fourth round and the rest is history. However, Raducanu's win hasn't just been celebrated for incredible sporting merit. Due to her immigrant background, Raducanu was born in Canada and is of Chinese and Romanian descent. It's also served as fuel to the political take factory. Responses ranged from the anodyne, like this from London Mayor Sadiq Khan. Emma Raducanu's story is London's story. Born in Canada to Chinese and Romanian parents, she moved to London at two years old. Here in London, we embrace and celebrate our diversity. And if you work hard and get a helping hand, you can achieve anything. Her win also reached the more outrageous corners of FBPE Twitter. Will Hutton is a columnist at The Observer. He tweeted the following. Bit by bit, the Brexit case collapses. Afghanistan foretells a new era of America first. Xi's Chinese menace grows. And now Emma Raducanu's tennis brilliance, fearful of nothing, daughter of immigrants, is testimony to the value of openness. We need to stand with and in an open EU. So Emma Raducanu winning the US Open is evidence that we need to rejoin the European Union. This guy's considered quite a serious thinker, um, author of multiple books. For a while, he was head of a, a college at Oxford, I think, and a regular columnist at The Observer. When it came to online controversy, most debate was prompted by those celebrating it who were deemed to have no right to. Nigel Farage was top of the pile in this respect. He tweeted, a global megastar is born. Emma Raducanu winning the US Open is truly incredible. Unsurprisingly, that tweet got ratioed because of Farage's previous statements about migration and in particular, his statements about Romanians. David Lamy tweeted, Emma Raducanu is half Romanian. Here is one of the countless stories that demonstrate the immense value migration brings to the UK. But you said, I wouldn't want to live next door to a Romanian. You have no right to piggyback on her incredible success. Dr. Shola Moshogbamimu made a similar point. She tweeted, Forgot she's half Romanian and Chinese, eh, Nigel. A xenophobic, racist hypocrite would kick people of Emma Raducanu heritage and talent out of UK without second thought. Nigel Faraz is shameless on Emma Raducanu. Victory when he won't live next door to Romanians and constantly demonizes immigrants. Ash, I want your thoughts on this. This has become familiar, especially it seems this summer, that sporting victories end up being a moment for lots of people to make political points, especially when it is people who are of immigrant background, often second or third generation when it came to, to the football, who are then made as examples of why immigration is a good thing, why multiculturalism is, is a good thing, and then also from the right for, I suppose, very cynical point scoring. What do you, what do you make of it? Is, is this, is this well-meaning people making a reasonable point, or is this slightly... Is it an odd way of doing politics, let's say? 
Let's take the Will Hutton tweet first, where he, in the same breath, is praising Emma Raducanu for her astonishing performance at the US Open, but also referencing Xi Jinping as the Chinese menace. Because this, to me, seems to be just a classic, perfect specimen of FBPE racism. It's something that we heard a lot from you know, people during the EU referendum, which is a uh, Actually, being in the EU doesn't even have an impact on non-EU immigration. So if you wanted to get rid of all those awful Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, you could. Or after Brexit actually happened, being like, oh my God, it's so unfair that, you know, my lovely Italian barista, you know, has to apply for settled status, but, you know, any old Indian could come to this country, right? There was a lot of that within the Remain site, something which really alienated me from other people who voted Remain was the sense of ranking of different countries, different backgrounds in order to make the point that you wanted to make about EU immigration. I think that Will Hutton's tweet falls into that trap. Of course, what Nigel Farage is saying is completely hypocritical, but that hypocrisy when it comes to the good immigrant the one who excels in their field, the one who puts their head above the rest and does so in the name of Great Britain and glory to the flag, that's always been something which racists have been quite comfortable with not just celebrating, but sometimes appropriating. It's also a way for them to demonstrate like, hey, I'm not a xenophobe. I don't like you know, I'm not a racist. Um, I really celebrate immigration when they pull off a once in a lifetime sporting achievement. Um, so I think that that vein of hypocrisy is pretty well established when you think about uh, British political discourse. And then I think you've got the third thing that you were talking about, which is, is this a good way to think about the politics of sport and the meaning of, you know, BAME and immigrant excellence when it's happening on the public stage. And I think we've got to draw a bit of a distinction between when uh, sports stars of color or, you know, cultural figures of color more generally are speaking out against racism and are politically expressing themselves in a very explicit way, which is what we did see with the England football team, uh, the commitment to taking the knee. It's something that we've also seen, for instance, with Lewis Hamilton in Formula One, where the murder of George Floyd was really a catalyst for his outspoken turn where before he was much more of a guarded kind of sports star. And someone like Emma Raducanu, who hasn't yet said, this is how I want to engage with the world. This is how I want to uh, think about not just my own ethnicity and my heritage, but also what I want that to mean and what, what, I, what kind of political work I want that to do. Because when you take that outside or beyond somebody's own hands, I think we then fall into this quite pernicious trap of the good immigrant again, which is you abstract and dehumanize. You take this human being who's got a rich wealth of experiences and thoughts and heritages and influences that they're pulling from, and you flatten them into a symbol of either the kind of nation you want or the one that you don't want. So the good immigrant is, you know, by its by necessity, by the way in which we construct this image, uh, just the the flip 
of the bad immigrant, right? Both are dehumanized and de-individualized. So I think that we do have to be wary of extrapolating further and saying, and this is the political meaning of Emma Raducanu. Well, of course she says something about this country and the fact that this is a diverse country where the fastest growing ethnic background is a mixed heritage people. That's a change that's happening to this country. And we're going to see that reflected in sports, popular culture, uh, politics, and more. But I don't think that you can say, and this means that we have to, you know, rejoin the EU. Ask her, ask what she thinks about it before you make her into, you know, your little mascot for your cause celeb. I don't know. That is very, I mean, I doubt she's a Brexiteer because of, I mean, her age for a start. Ash, before we go, because I do want to keep you a bit later than eight, just maybe to, you know, so you can work on your independence from the kitten. I want a comment on one story that broke before the show that I saw you tweeting about, which is that Andrew Neil has confirmed he is quitting GB News. Were you surprised? What do you make of the story? No, man, of course I'm not surprised. He was all he was there for all of two minutes before he was like, this is undignified. I'm going to bounce to the south of France. Um, you know, I think that he was embarrassed by, one, the amateur presentation of the channel, the fact that they had all of these technical difficulties, things kept going wrong. And that also you had blibbering idiots like Dan Wooten howling into the void. And I think Andrew Newell was like, oh, shit, maybe this cheapens me and makes me look kind of dumb because here I am amongst this menagerie of fools and grifters. So no, I'm not surprised that he's quit at all. I'm just surprised that it's taken him so damn long. What's going to be interesting is going to be to what extent is establishment media going to play a willing role in rehabilitating Andrew Neil and his legacy? Will he find a spot uh, on one of the establishment channels. I think maybe there's still a lot of goodwill, certainly people falling over themselves to crow about how able and you know intelligent and relentless a journalist he is. But it'll be interesting to see if, you know, at the executive level, whether or not he severed those relationships for good. He's on question time this first day. So it, <laughs> he's definitely, he's not going to have long away from the platform of the BBC. The BBC, I'm sorry, this is like the problem with the BBC every fucking time, right? They see someone spitting in their eye and then they go, do you want a really prestigious slot with great ratings? Because uh, you, the person who's tried to undermine our organization, you know, perhaps calling for the abolition of the license fee in some cases, you're exactly the kind of person who we want to signal boost. The BBC has as much of an instinct for self-preservation as I did while dating in my second year of uni, right? Someone would treat me badly. I'd go, come here, babes. I like what you've got to say. Say it more. I've got nothing but disdain for it. Let's wrap it up there. Ash, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.